was not caught, though many tried. I'll live among you, well disguised. This is Special Agent Hamilton coming in from a bus. Uh, I'm on my way from Manhattan to <laughs> Boston, so I'm recording on a bus. Um, like another premium cable channel show that's been discussed on this network before, I really, really, really hope that Vacoro does not come back. I feel like that is a cheap shot for a week's worth of cliffhanger and suspicion that True Detective just wouldn't do. I really hope they uh, leave him be, uh, for lack of spoilers for the people around me. Um, yeah, I, I, there's been a lot of speculation about the lack of blood in the shot uh, and a lot of speculation about the fact that it was a main character. I'm hoping True Detective sticks to its guns ding, and actually keeps him out of the show. Uh, only, only time will tell. I'm watching the show uh, as soon as I get back into Boston. We record tonight. Hopefully Amazon Prime's uh, shipping will get this tape to you as soon as possible. Have a great day. Talk to you soon. Special Agent Hamilton, I encountered a few things prior to getting on the case. I've heard from a CI that potentially rubber bullets might have been used. I don't know how I feel about this yet. Just my initial impression. Most luck out. This is a recording of a uh, operative agent that I learned and worked with in the Cleveland region when I was coming up. He had some interesting insights. Here you go. Desk Sergeant Mosalak. I can't tell you where I'm sending this message from because I'm undercover right now working on another case. Uh, but there's something uh, that has struck me as interesting regarding... Um, Valcoro and his perhaps untimely death, perhaps not. Time will tell there. In uh, the law enforcement field, they have uh, come a long way with the types of ammunition that they can use in weapons. If Valcoro were to survive this shooting, people are going to wonder how that's even possible. Uh, but there are some uh, potential choices out there that um, if somebody who worked for the right people might have access to um, would not make that shooting a fatal shooting. Um, if it's point blank with a, with a real um, shotgun, he's dead. There's no hospital. There's no he's in a coma. He's dead. He, he would be dead in about 10 seconds. But if you look at some other potential um, types of rounds that can be shot from a shotgun, um, there's a chance that he could survive this. Um, police can use some non-lethal rounds, rubber pellets, things like that, hard plastic pellets that wouldn't uh, do internal damage. They would certainly make somebody bloody and uh, look pretty gnarly, but it wouldn't necessarily kill them. So there's an option there if they're going to keep this guy alive for the show, the remainder of the series. Uh, they m maybe they're looking at doing this kind of an angle. But if that's really the case, then whoever shot him, you would think would have to have access to 
these kinds of rounds, which I know civilians can't easily get. So um, it could add an interesting angle to the story if the man who shot Velcoro is somehow connected to another law enforcement agency. Um, that would explain how he could uh, have gotten access to ammunition like that. Uh, so just a thought. I'm not saying it's the case, but just an idea for you for your consideration. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Evidence Locker, the True Detective Tapes. Today, tonight, this episode, we are going over episode three of True Detective, entitled Maybe nice. Tomorrow. Maybe Tomorrow. There he is. Agent Hamilton, how are you? <laughs> Doing very well. Uh, thanks again for having me back on the uh, tapes here in the uh, evidence locker we've got. Well, we have a, we have a lot of evidence that's been collected um, between episode two and three. Mm, yeah, we definitely do. Uh, do you want to jump right into some follow-up? I think we should. I think one of I, – I, I took the evidence that was given to me and I started to form it um, for my own narrative. And I was – Believe I, be, I believe I was mistaken that it is not a crow that is this animal that seems to be following us around, but it is a raven. Oh, it's a raven. Okay. Uh, what's the significance of that, if you don't mind me asking? Well, for some, you know, some of our agents may just drop little breadcrumbs every now and again. <laughs> and the significance of the, in Native American culture, the raven um, is a creature of metamorphosis, a change and transformation. It is also considered a trickster, but can also be the keeper of secrets um, and will guide this person on their journey to uh, unraveling their dreams or their convoluted um, whatever it is they're looking for. So it, it works kind of in mysterious ways. No, definitely. Uh, the way that. Uh, this show is structured, especially because we're watching this week by week instead of binging it all in once. Um, it's really great to get feedback like this on Twitter. So uh, thank you again for sending that in. Uh, who's the person that sent that in? That was Agent Corey Rupert. Of Corey. The, um, yeah, and he's in the Pittsburgh area. <laughs> uh, so he's he's got a little um, yellow and black striped hat. I know that personally. <laughs> No, uh, the best part about watching True Detective week to week is getting little bits of information like that between weeks and uh, different theories like that. So thank you so much, Corey, for sending that in. And if any of you have any uh, information you'd like to pass along our way, any evidence you happen to pick up, any thoughts you happen to have, please just tweet at us and we'll, uh, we'll incorporate into the show because we love watching this uh, week to week instead of binging. This is the only time in history we'll ever have this uh, seven days between each episode. So thanks again for participating, everyone. You guys rock. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really what uh, being a detective is all about, is gathering in information, whether it's perfect or not, but information gathered makes it a stronger episode. <laughs> uh, so that was really relevant feedback because the first thing we get this episode is a um, the continuation of last week's episode, the very end when uh, Vakoro is shot. And we learn the aftermath of that. We get a really weird dream sequence. Of him in the bar with who turns out to be his dad later. And it we're left wondering what the heck is happening. Is this purgatory? Is this lost? Is this some other weird thing that we get? But turns out it's just a weird hallucination. This reminded me a lot of Twin Peaks. 
Well, and that's interesting you said that because they made this part almost feel like that wasn't his father. He said, you know, you have your father's hands. Exactly. And, and that was just weird balls. <laughs> no, you're right. It's uh, That was so weird. First of all, I thought that was David Lynch. I thought that that was somebody, uh, uh, you know, it looked so much like David Lynch and this felt so Twin Peaks that I thought that was David Lynch. But um, no, that was weird. You have your father's hands. And he looks down and his knuckles are all bloody and battered. and looks like he uh, had just gotten out of the fight with the brass knuckles with the uh, kid's father from episode one. And uh, he is having one of those moments where he's looking back on life in this very abstract way. And I thought that was weird. What do you think of this Like in the context of the fact that this is true detective? Okay, well, I was watching it with my son and I said, this is really strange they're doing this musical number because that just – that kind of goes against everything we've seen. And I said, I'll bet you that that music is playing in the background because remember that radio was playing when he first got there. Mm -hmm. And I was like, something's blending in. And I happened to be correct in that, but um, just some of the, the Colin Farrell gives a great fear face. I don't know if he does. I think he, when he wakes up, you mean? Uh, no, when he's talking to his father. Hmm. He gives a good fear face in that, you know, it's weird. He doesn't know where he's going, but I feel like the best acting from him in this episode was when he woke up and he's like, he's freaking out about what's happened. He's like ripping off his shirt looking. And that was the panic I was looking for. We see in a scene with him later that his body is not in the best shape. His life is not in the best shape. And we get... At the end of that scene, do you want to die or do you want to live or something like that? And this is the one moment in the episode where we get to see that, yes, he wants to live, that he's so concerned for his own well-being once he wakes up. That was a great, great – I in fact, I have the same note on that, which the doctor, when he's getting – or just checked out to see if he's fit for duty. And the doctor says – the last thing he says is, do you even want to live? Mm, yeah, that's what it was. That was hard. I mean, that was just one of those hard moments because you, he could kind of say, you know, really, I don't. <laughs> no, uh, I mean, he's not the one with the death wish like uh, Taylor Kitsch is, as we see in episode one. But um, going back to the uh, scene when he wakes up, the, um, the song that's playing and the song is playing in the dream sequence as well. I knew that song best as the song that Napoleon Dynamite does sign language to in that movie from like, what, 2004? Yes, yes. <laughs> And I can't remember who originally did it. I swear to you, I want to say it's the Carpenters, but I don't believe I'm right in that. And I didn't do my homework on it. My girlfriend all. in the background is uh, nodding. Yes, it is the Carpenters. Bang! <laughs> good call. Good call on that one. No, I, I, yeah, I know that as the song that they do the tinny little keyboard and the weird sign language to in Napoleon Dynamite. And then I heard this and I was wondering, wait, who is originally doing this song? Like, this is like a. I don't want to say country, but that deep crooner Johnny Cash style uh, singing. And I was like, wait, what is this song originally? I don't even know. And I know I'm showing my age here when I didn't know that was the Carpenters. But no, that was uh, that was a weird little moment, too, especially because, you know, True Detective is usually played so straight that we rarely get like we see last season. We saw McConaughey hallucinate and we saw him do some weird stuff, but that was given much more context than this. And we knew we were able to see through his eyes, and that added something to his character. 
Whether or not this thing was necessary, I'm not entirely sure. Well, and let me go one more step further, which is if he's having this dream sequence or this hallucination or, you know, out-of-body experience, who is that guy that's dressed up singing? I don't know. It reminds me of the um of the little person in uh, Twin Peaks just kind of being there and dancing and singing. Zip zap zoop zap. Well, uh, I think that was the uh, ultimate secret of True Detective, but we'll never know because it was garbled by Phil. Great job. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, so, but but let's 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 go ahead and and deal with what we just saw because we saw a major character get shot as a cliffhanger, and it turns out to be Riot Gear and in parentheses spoken in dialogue. Something that cops would have. Okay. I talked a lot about this last episode. I talked about this in my tape to you. I am... uh, God. I don't know what upsets me more. The fact that, you know, he comes back at the end of that big cliffhanger and that we spent a week speculating for nothing. This is exactly how I feel about, you know, say, another... Uh, premium channel TV show that we've talked about elsewhere on this feed. I feel like once you do that to a character, don't bring him back. It feels so cheap. But I'm also really upset in the fact that they completely played off in the rest of the episode. I forgot about this at the by the end of the episode. And I just remembered Vakora's back. Great. He's back on the case. And I just completely forgot about it. And we spent a week uh, racking our brains, wondering what's going to happen, where the show's going to go. But nope, he's there. And nothing changed except for a few broken ribs literally nothing and i felt like it was cheap and i don't feel like that is the best true detective has to offer by by far at all and then let's just get to the the quote reality of the situation uh two to three feet away with riot gear bullets can still kill you can it is that like did you were you able to gather that yeah it, it really can and so you have to be very careful about how, how you shoot those kinds of um, – uh, I was going to be fancy and say, say a fancy word in there, but um, <laughs> yeah, ordinance is what I was going to say. Um, but you, you can't just go point blank and think that it's going to be okay. You can do like severe damage, not just broken ribs. Exactly, exactly. That's what it looked like, and that's what I thought. I didn't – like this is going to be one of those things where people are going to go back and look and see – like the little details like, oh, there wasn't much blood or, oh, the scatter gun didn't make this kind of light when it shot or something. I don't know. But that's one of those things that people are going to be able to look back and connect the two pieces. And again, in five years when you can immediately start the next episode after this one, it's not going to matter. But I'm still pissed off right now here in 2015 after waiting a week, racking my brain about where the season's going to go. Here we are with nothing to show for the amazing cliffhanger last week. I totally agree. So let's move forward because because obviously the writers did. <laughs> no, you're right. They uh, it's kind of moved on. He has a few broken ribs. He has a scene in the doctor later, but honestly, the rest of the episode just plays out very very straightforwardly. The only big major advancement we make in terms of the plot is that the police now knows about this house. And Anne is super pissed that he had and he had no reason to be there without her because she is the main um or the lead on the t- on the case exactly we do get some political stuff later with the uh police higher-ups where we get people that are talking about you know who's doing what where and the legality of the situation and who does what 
Um, and I thought that was a really great moment. My favorite moment in the episode in terms of the characters was when um, Rachel McAdams comes up and asks Vakora, what were you doing here? How did you find this place? And he goes, oh, a prost. And I thought, oh, wow, good thinking. But then I realized, wait a minute, that is how they found out about the place. That's how um, Frank passed the information on to him was from one of uh, his associates' employees. That's right. I mean, in some ways, I took that as as like him kind of giving information in, in a forthright way. Like he was trying not to cover anything up. Exactly, exactly. The easiest way to continue doing something is just to tell the truth so you don't have to keep track of all the different like parallel lies that you're telling. Very true. <laughs> Very true. True detective, you might say. Cut that Indeed. out. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, no, it's fine. We can we can go there. There's no one. There's no judgment here. Mm. So what next? Uh, we have a scene where Rachel McAdams comes into the house, and we get the Vinci police chief looking extremely smug and extremely like I, I don't want to say pervy, but that's where I'm going to go. Pervy. The way that he, uh, he looks at her and says, "Yep, a man in my force." He doesn't have a southern accent. A man in my force uh, gets shot. You you bet I'm going to be on the case, and then gives her this really long, prolonged, awkward look, and I was cringing the entire time. I didn't know what he expected to get out of it. I don't know what he expected her to read from him about it, but oh my god, he is a... As we'll see later, the Vinci Police Department is not the most clear-cut place in the world. It's really not, and that actor who's playing him has played roles that I can't offhand say what I've seen him in, but it's always not good. It's always creepy guy and kind of just off-putting. So I'm not sure what we're going to get out of this guy. And in fact, I would put him as a person of interest. Really? You would go so far as to say he's a person of interest, huh? I, I, I have to, I, you know, this is, this is me as a detective going with my gut. Hmm. He is a person, person of interest. I would put him under surveillance with no problem. See, I would agree if this were any other show other than True Detective. And I know I'm comparing a lot of this stuff to season one based on the, what the show's done in the past. But I feel like, well, a lot of this is nullified by the fact that there was a freaking dream sequence that looked like Twin Peaks in the beginning of this episode. But I think that what True Detective was trying to say there was something about the gender dynamics between the Vinci police head and Rachel McAdams. If this were any other show and it typically ends with you know removing a mask and saying mr johnson from the candy factory like in scooby-doo then i would agree with you but i do think that he is going out for something of his own whether that's power whether that's you know a clean-cut case whether that's some sort of uh like leverage over uh another empowering or uh empowered female character in the show I feel like that's what he's trying to get out of it. Um, I feel like Casper is less than nothing to him, and all he wants to do is maintain a not clean operation, but a down-low operation. Well, it seems like they are Vinci's police force is aware of the state's case being built against them. Or, if they're not, they're very wary of the state police. Exactly, exactly. There's a lot of stuff there going on with um, – well, we see a lot of, again, the higher-ups talking to each of their um, constituents inside the case, and they each tip their hand a little bit. They, the way that that scene is cut, cutting back and forth between Vinci and L.A., I thought that was awesome, and it's a good juxtaposition between the um, 
between what each person's trying to get out of it. But things are starting to get much cloudier than I tended than I expected in the beginning. And I feel like Casper and the ultimate villain of the show is getting lost in the shuffle because of it. I agree. No, it's it's weird. It's something that I would not have expected True Detective to do, but here we are. <laughs> That's right. Well, let's move on to Frank the Tank. Mm, Frank the Tank. Uh, he is in <laughs> the. <laughs> he's getting he's getting filleted. In, that's a way of putting it. The way that this is shot, <laughs> you see a shot of him, and then you see uh, a, cut, a quick cut to some porno mags and some tissues and some lube. It's like <laughs> I, I thought this was uh, so. It, it, I don't think it's played for laughs, but it's hard to take shots like that seriously. Uh, well, and based around Vince Vaughn, like you all, there's there's certain things. Even when he does his most serious face, it's that you can't help it because of what he has been in so you know his visual baggage is going i thought maybe everybody has some sort of porn addiction and he was getting ready to um you know treat himself mm-hmm. no that's what i thought based on his environment it turns out this is an uh, ivf facility yeah what in the world did we know about this yeah they mentioned last week or the week before something about it was an offhand comment in a bar uh, between Vacoro and Frank where they're talking about women or something. And Frank says, yeah, me and my wife are having some trouble. We're uh, going to do this IVF thing. I think it's bonkers, but we're doing it. Ah, uh, okay, okay. It's That's coming out of the fog. Yeah, no, it's it was a small detail. They never really followed up on it. Um, but they followed up on it uh, tonight in a very big way. And I thought it was like... It, what did you think of his reaction to it? Well, he just seemed to get so angry. And, like, at first she was acting more as a girlfriend than a wife. I mean, you know, I I don't see very many wives um, demasculate their husband in the way that she did. And that seemed really wrong. And I wasn't expecting that. And that's why it didn't read like, it's my wife. No, you're right. It read like, well, first of all, they're both so wrapped up in their own world in this. And the fact remains that if they're trying to conceive a child, they've got to be in this together. This is a thing that requires two people to be on the very same page 100% of the time. And at this point, they haven't even conceived yet. That's what they're trying to do. And they're having problems coming to terms with the fact that in Vince Vaughn's eyes, this isn't natural. And, you know, this brings up the question, what the hell is natural anyway? This is still, you know, biologically a, a woman being impregnated. Uh, this is something that I feel like he's uncomfortable with in terms of his masculinity. And that's something True Detective has always been about, masculinity and being a man and manly man. And, like, there, there was a scene later where uh, um, Rachel McAdams and her higher-up talks about uh, possibly, you know, hinting that she wants to have sex with Vicoro. And it was so blatantly obvious that that scene was written by a man. <laughs> like, putting a man's words in a w woman's mouth like that, it felt weird. And it feels especially weird here with 
Frank being so upset about how quote unquote unnatural IVF is and the fact that he has to ejaculate into a little cup and do the whole procedure. He's so uncomfortable with it, the fact that it's not natural. It read to me almost like Henry the Eighth, like yelling at his wife for not producing a um a son when all in all it is the male component of pregnancy that determines the sex. And it felt so weird. Well, you know, and it's funny because his reaction had this feel of like the Italian mafioso kind of capo where like where Catholicism kind of rings in a little bit and like this isn't natural. This isn't how it's supposed to happen. And like I haven't gotten that feel off of his character, you know, in three episodes. And now you're kind of giving him this Italian thing. And it was just odd. I, I wasn't again, we're diving into these characters and we seem to actually be stunted a little bit at who these characters are. Like every time I think I know about this character, they tack on yet another um, idiosyncrasy. No, you're definitely right. Um, okay, so I know there are listeners that are listening to this run of the show that may or may not have seen season one. So I'd recommend skipping ahead 30 seconds for a big twist uh, that happens in season one starting now. So you're right. We don't get the whole picture of these characters. Last season, when we get a new plot development, we get like a single big thing. We get that Woody Harrelson is cheating on his wife in a big way because we get a sex scene between him and a mistress in like the second episode. And in the middle of the run of the show, when they finally find the kids in the woods, the big twist there is that they end up um, like faking everything. And there's something there that, you know it immediately reveals 100% of this aspect of the characters. And we don't get that this run. We get Rachel McAdams watching porn for 10 seconds. And that says something about her character, but we don't know yet. We get little hints about Frank and his problems with uh, quote unquote natural birth or whatever, or natural impregnation, but we don't get the full picture yet. We don't know exactly what he's feeling. We get little bits and pieces about Taylor Kitsch, but we don't know exactly what's up. We get some follow up later in the episode about his possible sexuality and we don't have the full picture yet and it's infuriating because on true detective we are on the side of these characters and they keep plowing forward with them but on this we're like we are equally at odds with the characters in the show as we are with this villain yeah i i'm i i i, I i'm right there with you and i can't think of um specifically why a writer would do it this way again there are multiple characters you know half again as many um and even in this episode i would say it has become more about the, each entity's investigations rather than the people in them we're getting a little bit more about the people but um it, it seems to be the state's investigation and what they want uh mcadams to do and what uh, Vinci wants Ray to do. But we're not getting anything like season one where the case means something so personal to these characters. Touch darkness and darkness touches you back. We get Woody Harrelson and his daughters. We get Matthew McConaughey and his faith. But we get nothing like that in this show. All we get is some weirdly sexually depraved um, man named Casper who is into some weird things and... He's gotten himself into all these weird odds and ends, and one of them, they don't know what yet, has come to kill him and is now going after the 
um, going after the officers as well. And I'm hoping now that I'm talking about this aloud with you on the show that somehow down the line, the sexuality of Casper, the sexuality of uh, Taylor Kitsch, the sexuality of Rachel McAdams, how we've gotten little bits and pieces of everything. I hope it all comes to a head like it does at the end of season one. I think I think it will. I, I think we're just in the throes of episode three, and this is kind of tur- – this has been – I don't even know if this is necessarily a turning point, but it's definitely motion forward um, with tr- – of each of our, our characters trusting each other. And I will go on to this, on this in the case of trust. Ray immediately goes to Frank, uh, not on the phone, and says – you know what just happened to me? I got shot. So what's up with that? And are you trying to kill me? Yeah, he says that. And there's a, that weird moment where they're not entirely sure who on whose side they're on. And this is the first time, again, this is the only real relationship they've ever really had because they can't seem to get away from each other. But this is the one moment that we've seen so far in the show, only three episodes in, where they seem to doubt each other. Yeah, and, and in fact... Frank is a little bit more than upset that this is even the allegation is even coming his way. We know that Frank is having an awful day or a couple days. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and to have his muscle uh, that upset with him, you know, I think that's really starting to throw him to like, I, I don't even know what um, I'm dealing with. And in fact, the guy that's always drunk is now drinking water, telling me how much he wants to be angry. Exactly. No, there's this really great moment where you realize that Frank, for the first time in the show's run so far, is drinking water. <laughs> and I love that. the That little aha moment for him. Wake up. Your life is crap. That small steps. You know, he's drinking water instead of whiskey. And the way that he interacts with Frank in this scene is, first of all, I'm glad we get more scenes in the bar. These are my favorite moments in the season so far. I realize that now that because uh, Ray is back how much I would have missed having these bar scenes had he not come back. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, his, quote, scar-faced girlfriend is very concerned, but that's really kind of, that's basically the end of the scene before we start to get to what, I'm going to just say it flat out. This is how it feels to me. Mm -hmm. They're going over to the movie studios because they're, they're dealing with um, tax credits and things of that nature. Yes. What they're doing is they went on to trace somebody's uh, – there was some name that was affiliated with uh, – that Casper was financing this film shoot. So, yeah, you're right. They went there because of tax purposes. Okay. Now, and, and granted, I, the word tax you know, automatically brings up the, this flag, but I, I just want to say it does have that – episode one star wars feel where i'm like are you kidding me we're going down the tax man path <laughs> oh my god you did not just bring up episode one. <laughs> I, I have to it, it just it's important to identify it because if we're doing this if we're going to be playing paperwork this is going to be a problem and I, I i hope this is the first and last i can see going down and finding paper trails but let's not go and start having big sit-downs about how the money flows. You're right. I had problems with this in the first few episodes where Vince Vaughn is going around trying to figure out uh, where his money went. And 
those scenes could have been distilled into, do you have my money? No. Where is it? I don't know. You're, you're right. I feel like we got too much of that here. I feel like this scene, however, at the film shoot didn't bother me in that sense where, you know, going to this film shoot because of a tax tip does it it's a way of moving the plot along in the way that true detective tends to do but it's not offensive to me because they got some information and i also thought it was cool to have you know a film set happening on you know on screen i always think that's cool like when movies do that or when tv shows do that there's got to be some like reason they're doing that and there's some i my feeling that they put this in because they wanted to show people creating their own facade for profit and i feel like that parallels casper's facade for uh, casper's facade for profit try saying that 10 times fast (laughs) yeah i wouldn't even try that um not on my best day (laughs) um now going after this which i which what does that lead us to that leads us to um casper's safe deposit box yeah so they're at this point they're they've found this house they found a few more tax records they found some phone lines they found some phone calls made and it does bring them to this deposit box where they find um a bunch of money a bunch of deeds i think let me think i think that that is what led to uh, now i'm starting to get things jumbled up i think the uh safe deposit box led to the film shoot but what led to the safe deposit box was phone records from the second house that Vicora got shot in, which led them to the mayor's house. We didn't talk about the mayor's house. Do we want to touch on that? Yes. And now there's one more thing inside of that uh, safe deposit box. I read it as I thought I heard blue diamonds, but I'm in doing a little bit of reading from some other agents saying black diamonds. I heard blue as well. Okay, is there a significant to, significance to that that you're aware of off the top of your head? The only thing I can think about is uh, Blood Diamond. Okay, I think those diamonds are going to, that's going to be a major piece at some point, but it's just completely um, pushed out there because no one seems to like look at it any differently, but I think it's going to come up to be something. Oh, definitely. The way that they shot those blue diamonds and the way they built up to, oh, yeah, and there was one more thing. Look at Apple events. It was like, one more thing. Blue diamonds. I, I feel like the way that they did it was weird, but um, it's too obvious to not come up again later. Okay, now getting to the mayor, which he might seriously have the creepiest house ever made, and that was his wife, and that was his son, Yes, though I was confused for a second. I thought we hadn't met the mayor yet, but it turns out we have in a prior episode, and we meet him again later in the uh, police department. But what we get here is his wife and son and various other um, <clears throat> invitees to the party, uh, where they the house didn't seem particularly creepy to me, but it was just dirty. It was disgusting. Yeah, again, it almost is like, ooh, is this the aftermath of one of those kind of sex parties that you guys are playing? No, that's exactly what it was. And the way that he talked about how he organizes special events, quote unquote, it was like, oh, okay, that's what you're that's what you're doing here. Great. Um, what else? The, the first person we meet is his wife, who is um, 
uh, obviously strung out on something. Uh, she's walking all over this dirty, dirty floor, opening the door for these uh, detectives, completely strung out. And when she invites them in, they sit down on the sofa. She takes a drag of something. Was that a weird way of smoking pot? I, I've never seen that before. Okay, I, I'm going to chalk this up to that we are on the East Coast and that we don't delve into those kind of situations to begin with. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you the exact same thing. I thought it was some sort of condom that she was like, like sucking like helium or nitrous off of. But I was just like, but it's for my eyes. I was like, what? I don't know. I think it was uh, a balloon filled with pot smoke, almost like a hot box where they, um, uh, I guess they smoked a joint and blew all of the smoke into there, and then they get a little high off of the remnants of the smoke in there, like secondhand. But who knows? I mean, I've never seen that before, so who knows? I thought it was a, um, I thought that was weird. And the way she says, oh, it's for my eyes, like, okay, that gave it away. But really? Come on. It was just weird, and I don't think it moved the narrative forward. It was just weird. Exactly. And I, I I actually disagree. I feel like it moves the narrative in a way that, you know, shows that this entire family is screwed up where they're all doing these things together and they're they're all uh, trying to, you know, just bring this house down with all the parties and drugs and women that they can get. And I think that um, it steers a narrative in a way that, you know, like True Detective did so well last year, creeps you out. It's like you watch these things and they're not particularly disturbing or they're not particularly upsetting on their own but the way that it's shot the way that the plot goes and the way that informs each of the characters that uh do all of these things i think that it it, the sum of its parts is much greater than the whatever the phrase is the whole is greater than some of its parts yeah there was one person that basically got zero screen time that they seem to gloss over and I'm guessing it was the mayor's daughter. She opens the doors open and Annie walks in and she then closes the door on her and that's it. Was that okay, so I was confused about that. I thought that was the same woman that jumped out of the window uh a few seconds later. I think that's what we call poor editing and <laughs> where, you know, we we all um basically took a Kuleshov drink. And basically that that's why that happened. No, you're right. Exactly. It was it was very weird. Um, I hope she comes back at some point and when we can all watch this in one binge and make connections much easier than we are now week by week, it'll mean something a bit more. But for now, we have a character and she's introduced for 10 seconds and then she's gone. Go true detective. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what else? We um, the other. uh uh, the other implication of this scene that we get later is how upset the mayor is later uh, with uh, with Annie and the way that he's yelling and saying obscenities that I'm genuinely uncomfortable to repeat in this podcast. It's like he is furious with the fact that she, uh, a L.A. detective, came to his house and asked questions. How horrible is that? Because she's a woman and she's a strong character. Like, it was ridiculous. Like, he is furious with her later in the uh, scene with Vicoro and his uh, police higher-ups. There's something here, and again, this starts to harken back to tax uh, implications, but this idea of the city versus the state. And I have seen this in my own 
job that I'm in now between the city, the county, and the state, all vying for their piece of how things work. And that that's the only thing that, in my mind, is the real impetus for him being so angry is like, how dare the state start to um, muscle in on what I'm doing here? No, you're definitely right. That's, you know, CGP Cray has a video about this, actually, about how the um, county, uh, town, state, something along those lines, like how each of those layers of the hierarchy cake is uh, plays in with each other. But you're right. I feel like that is the big takeaway from all of these things. We get so many scenes of it. Every single week we're reminded that there are struggles between uh, each of the factions and how the um, power is distributed. There's, we get so much of that. I hope it comes to a head soon and it's not just like, grr, we're angry and we're going to remind you of this every single week. I really hope it's not that. Yeah, I hope so too. But the cool thing is we're about to get paid off. Because we find out now that uh, Fred Ward, a.k.a. Remo Williams, a.k.a. Ray's dad, um, <laughs> is Ray's dad. And he's a mess. He's a real bad mess. No, definitely. He, the way that they interact with each other and the way he comes and drops off some pot, which I thought was awesome. You know, getting pot for your 80-year-old dad. Good on you, Ray Vercoro. Great job. But the way that they interact in, like, oh, yeah, so how you doing? Yeah, good. You've been eating? Mm, yeah, well, well this will make you hungry. Cool. Like, the short, stilted conversations, playing their cards so close to their chest. It's so, uh, again, masculine. All of the stuff that your detective does to reinforce masculinity is right here on display. And he seems to have gotten his pension halved, which would lead me to believe that either one of two things has happened. He has gotten like a dishonorable um, release, and so he's only given half of his pension, or he was forced out early and thus can only grab half, half of his pension. Yeah, I noticed that. That's something that they were you know, trying to piece together there in that scene. He's just there complaining about it, and I thought, huh, this is interesting. I really hope he's more of a character later so we get more information about it. But that starts to kind of lead me down a path of, who is Ray? And if Ray is being a, a case we find out is being built against him by having large sums of money sitting around the house, um, like in the case of uh, lawyers in episode one, or is he trying to do the right thing and like supplement his father's retirement? Yeah, exactly. Uh, the way that they interact with each other is very different based on uh, all of those things. You're right. Yeah, so I and I don't think it's necessarily to show you, okay, well, this is Ray, you know, if everything keeps following the way it's going to be, this is this is what Ray is going to be. I think this is showing you one of Ray's things that he's doing and trying to be a good person doing in a bad way. No, no, you're right. I mean, he's he seems like a good guy. He cares enough. Uh, about the um, about the people in his life, but he's such a jerk about it. Uh, my favorite little detail from this was that when he's asked about his son, he says, yeah, we don't see as much of each other as we'd like. The way he brings his son into that and says we instead of I is it's subtle yet nerve-wracking to me, especially based on the scene we get next, I think. That is um, uh, his ex-wife coming to deliver some news and a little something more. Indeed, and... Just by happenstance, um, Annie is at his house 
kind of following up on some leads and he immediately beelines out because he doesn't want her to see his ex-wife, which leads me to believe that maybe there could be something or he's trying to kind of distance himself from this is my wife. I like you as well. So let's just kind of keep these two things separate. Um, but he, she wants full custody, you know, no, no questions asked. And here's, I'm going to drop the dime. The state came to the house and they are mounting a case against you. No, uh, remember in episode one, when he's with the lawyer who uh, asks him, Oh, is there anything in your past? I can come back to bite you. And he says, no, I do not fear being judged or something like that. I welcome judgment. And this is a moment where, you know, here's judgment. Are you welcoming it? <laughs> nope. Um, he's scared of what's happening with him. Uh, but money seems to not have an effect on him either. Uh, even though he was willing to bribe the lawyer in that first episode, here his ex-wife gives him $10,000 to not question the paternity of his son. And he is not having it. He's willing to grease fingers for his son in his favor, but when it comes to just like letting this all go quietly, he's going down with a fight. He is one of those people who will insist to be right until he's kicking and screaming on the floor like the Black Knight in Monty Python with no limbs whatsoever, just yelling, I am victorious. He's not going down without a fight. And I think that... What I'm most excited about to see in his character as we go forward is how this custody case is going to not only play out for himself and his character, but how it's going to play into the rest of the Casper case. I agree. I, it's, uh, I, mm, I, I just don't, it's like how much more can Ray get hit over the head? No, and definitely. And that's starting to really bother me is like how much. They're like just absolutely digging into him. Now, I think more is going to happen to some of our other people. In fact, Big Paul is doing some investigating on his own. Yes. Um, so here is where we get uh, – we got some really great feedback from uh, Jeff Roy who talked about uh, some pretty glaring um, – some pretty glaring uh, information about his sexuality, and he thought that – um, he, that Taylor Kitsch was closeted. And I was like, really? Wait, going back, I started to see it. There's little moments where he talks about, like the way that the, it, the show builds it up, it looks like that he's um, not making connections with his girlfriend uh, and he's not you know, able to please her sexually because of his past in the war or in the army. And I never even thought about this, but now that I'm looking at it from this perspective, all of this is there. There's all these little hints uh, that point to him being closeted, and I think it's, I think it's great. I think the um, dilemma inside him is starting to come out and crack the facade in this episode in ways we hadn't seen before. Well, and I think it starts to lead you down the path of, well, the girl who he pulled over, he didn't give any credence to. Mm -hmm. And so she burned him and it wasn't because he had done anything wrong. It's because he declined. No, you're definitely right. The way that, first of all, that first scene and his sexuality, that plays into it perfectly. And then 
he starts to ask questions while he's in the well, it's not really a gay bar, is it? Or is it? I you know, I'm I'm a, I was a little confused about what I was looking at. Um because obviously I was a little stunned because once uh he's interview interviewing these prostitutes, this male prostitute is the one that leads him to uh the Lux, which happens to be one of Frank's old establishments, and they actually bump uh shoulders. And I thought Wait a minute. Do they not know each other? And I guess they didn't. I was just like, "What? Why are you guys looking so hard at each other?" And like, but I guess Frank is—he's not even a like a part of the investigation yet. You know, so he would have no idea about him. No, you're right. Um, so you're right. The male prostitute outside, when he's talking to the other prostitutes, uh, he leads him into the bar and. He's very ambiguous about whether or not it's uh you know true gay bar or not. He says, "Yeah, I go there sometimes in a pinch." That's uh um but when he goes in and uh you no, know, he's flirting with him a little bit, which I think is great, but the way that um he walks in and it looked so familiar. I thought, "Wait a minute, is this Frank's bar from last episode?" And then as soon as I said that, he bumps into Frank and <laughs> the look he gives him is, "Wait a minute. You look you you look like you're important to this plot." But I'm not sure yet, and the script hasn't told me so, so I'm going to keep walking. Right. I would have much preferred them just to walk next to each other, bump, look, go. And nothing more than that. You don't have to be heavy-handed with it. No, exactly. They were way too heavy-handed with it. And I feel like this is something I wanted to bring up earlier but didn't. Vaughn's performance in this episode is nowhere near as good as I thought it would be. Uh, His character is descending uh, into some weird madness spiral based on the script but not at all implicated in the way that Vaughn's performing him. Uh, no. No. And you would think that Vaughn is, you know, at least the way I'm seeing the Frank character come together is that he was not this super underboss coming and rising through the ranks like mafia style. Mm-hmm. He seems to be more uh, pen, paper, ledger type of uh, moving higher into the organization. And and then to have him like give um that guy the absolute root down beating made zero sense to me. Not to say that I didn't like it, but it was completely out of his character. So when I saw that, I thought, okay, they're trying to do this thing where they show it that this character has a dark side. And that's cool if they're gonna make a character as multi-layered as that and as multi-layered as a lot of the characters were last season. Great, let's do that. But it just felt so out of character. And they do things where, like, at the very end of that scene, you're right, when he encounters everyone else and starts giving him uh, and starts, you know, accusing everyone of uh, being involved in this Casper thing and says, everyone uh, you talk to, ask them about Casper, da 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 And at the end of that scene, when one of the guys, who was the guy from last week that gave him the name of the prostitute that knew Casper's house, um, that guy, when he comes up and starts questioning him, a, a fight breaks out. And at the end of the fight, he takes pliers and plucks out his teeth. Uh, we don't see it on screen, but later, when he goes home to his wife, we see him take the teeth out of his pocket and throw them away. It's like, oh my god. And it was effective in that very visceral way that True Detective usually is. But it made no sense for his character. And as far as I know, the way that True Detective operates, it's 50% atmosphere and direction, 50% screenwriting and characters. And I feel like those two things were 
both firing on all cylinders last year and this year we get some it's still the same people behind the scenes but the actors and the script is nowhere near as good as it was last year and this is the one moment that really sealed the deal for me i thought that him plucking out his teeth was not anything that he would ever do and it was something that it just infuriated me it was a cool scene you're right it's not that i didn't like it but come on okay I will let, let, let me let me let me weave you a tale for a weave second. Me a tale. I've seen some I've seen something like this in a movie called Knockaround Guys. Basically, it was the 2000s versions of a Goodfellas gone completely south. And Seth Green is one of these guys and Vin Diesel is one of these guys. And Vin Diesel has a character basically muscle and he 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 just gets real he does this real tough guy thing where he's like 500 and the guy's like 500 what he said about 500 fights is what i thought about wait before i could be tough enough to call myself tough and when vince says you can keep the rings on you know you won't i I won't it doesn't bother me like it rang like that to me and although the vin diesel version like it was cool in that moment that, you know, he just completely throws down and gives the guy the, the TF rough stuff. Um, in this, I just, I didn't see Vince Vaughn as a super tough guy. I didn't see even Frank as a tough guy, a guy from the streets that knows how to fight. Huh. Uh, first of all, this movie has a 20% on Rotten Tomatoes, so, mm, interesting. Second, the way that... Oh, oh I, highly, I highly recommend watching it. I used to own it. But the the scene with with Vin Diesel and Five Hundred is well worth the price of admission of the whole thing. <laughs> no, that, that this looks fun. I'll give it a shot, adding it to the list. But no, you're right. The way that they put on this show of manliness and toughness, and the way that comes out in the dialogue and the characters, it does feel like that. Where we get little bits. Of, it, it's economical storytelling. Don't take off your rings. That says a lot about his character. But. It doesn't feel like his character. It feels like it's all over the place, and it doesn't feel... It feels like they're trying to be too shocking with him. Or put up with way too many, like, ooh, he can fight. Maybe he's a killer. I, you know, look, the way he looked at his buddy who was dead, you know, again, he wasn't surprised at looking at a dead body, but then he started to pull the Al Pacino, like, who's coming after me? What? <laughs> I didn't know you were that important. <laughs> when his when that guy died, first of all, when that guy was late and he was freaking out, and then when the other guy died, I didn't know who either of those people were. They were just part of his posse. Yeah, that, I, why, why am I supposed to care about him? And why should he? <laughs> it was so, like... <sighs> okay, uh, there, there's one more scene uh, I want to touch on. Now, wait a minute. There, wait, that, that, one, that one scene, though, with the guy dead... If you'll notice, his eyes are missing. No, wait. Th- missing. Like, Casper missing. Exactly. I, I missed that. <laughs> good eye, detective. Well, good eye in that you have both of your eyes and they're intact. Good job. But good eye. Wow. That's what they pay me for. <laughs> wait, they pay you? Well, in in like, you know, it's not real money anymore. Oh, okay, cool. Uh... <laughs> No, that's I did not notice that. That's amazing. Um, so okay, the same guy that's going after Casper and alleged, and possibly the same guy that shot Vicoro in the Raven suit is also the same guy that's picking off 
Vince Vaughn's cronies. So at least we know that even though they may have their differences and their own motives, at least this one guy is a, a common enemy. They are This bad guy is the White Walkers of this universe. I would assume so, because mm-hmm. he's got a white mask at the end of it. And bef- yeah, hold on, before we get to the end, before we get to the end, we, there is one thing we've missed, mm-hmm. and that is Rachel McAdams, Annie, uh, shutting down um, detective boyfriend or wannabe boyfriend. This is the same guy from the first episode, her introduction, but with a mustache, right? Yes. He grew a mustache. I was curious about that. Well, when you have sex with Annie, you tend to want to grow a mustache. <laughs> just the the uh, testosterone just pumps all through your veins and through your uh, upper lip. Again. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's science. Uh, exactly. That's true detective science for you there, kids. Uh, what, what did you make of that, 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 that scene? I thought that my, my biggest problem with that scene was that there was some weird antagonistic stuff between her and a coworker that I didn't understand. Something about mama's boy. And the way that, um, th- again, they're just being too vague with these characters. If we, w- if you want us to be on board with these characters, then give us more information about them. Don't tease us. That's a different show. Don't tease us, True Detective. Don't give us cliffhangers and then just completely rip them out from under our feet because turns out it's fake bullets. Like just, this scene was another one of those calling cards for me that the show is starting to fall victim to a whole slew of things that I didn't want it to fall victim to. I think it's problematic that we don't know what all this stuff is happening with uh, Rachel McAdams and Detective Boyfriend and I don't like the way that I, I mean I liked the way that um that she said something along the lines of don't fight with me I'll win or something like that she she is strong she's a great like strong female character but we don't have enough of her is my problem yeah um look I, I try to be like I feel like I'm watching the show and I'm really trying to pay attention when I'm watching it. And when detective boyfriend walks off and her partner ish says, you know, something about mama's boy. I'm like, why are you even talking? It doesn't, you don't, that doesn't, I, I felt like I blinked like for half a second and I've missed something completely. I was like, that makes no sense for you to even pull that off. It, it made no sense. You're right. I did not understand why it was there. So maybe we maybe that's a cliffhanger we get to we get to solve. Uh, but I think it's dumb. Again, this is the only time in history where we will have to wait a week between episodes. Give us another six months, and maybe we'll have something other to say that is you know we can make the connection between this mama's boy comment and maybe some other thing further down the line. But it felt like as economical as most of the story is, that felt like a waste of ten seconds. And when you only get eight episodes, ten seconds is enough of something to make a difference true detective has done much better in 10 second intervals i i totally agree and then we get to ray and annie um going to whose house they go to the house of i think this was the driver for the cadillac that went missing from the film shoot or something like that and it, it this is it it was so convoluted. It's convoluted enough that I was able to write it off and just forget about it because literally 10 seconds into the scene, we get a exploding car and a foot chase. But it, that is convoluted. That is not something I expected the show to do. Okay, so in theory, this guy that they're going after with the car should be the guy that was driving uh, Casper around town before he 
put him on the park bench? That's what I thought, but the car that they had and that they'd found was red. And not just for the flames, like in the picture, the car was red. And I am 95% sure that the car was black in the, or navy blue in the first episode. I'll go with that. I'm pretty sure. I mean, unless there was some weird photography in this episode, I am 90% sure that the car was red. Yeah, okay. Well, and regardless, that now we have a new mask that's, I couldn't even tell what this mask was. It looked like the front end of like, like a 747 at moments. <laughs> I could not, I could not identify, or it was some sort of like, you know, Japanese like cat mask. I could not see it. I was waiting for a close up of it or at least a more steady shot of it. And turns out, nope, we don't get it. All we get is some shaky handheld long shots with it. And I was this close to like freeze framing it and like zooming it, zoom, enhance, zoom, enhance. I was this close to doing that without the enhancing because that's not real. But the way that you don't get any information, I thought this was some sort of anime mask. It looked very innocent, looked very cute in my eyes. What do you think? Well, I, I just appreciate that you kind of just threw the Blade Runner action in there. Uh, <laughs> so I'm just going to leave it at, at that part. But, you know, the action of the scene seemed real phony baloney. Um, all of a sudden, Ray's ribs are killing him, and he can barely move. And then we get to basically kind of a... We, we we know something's going to happen because, you know, the one the guy, the perpetrator goes across the road. We kind of see a cut of a truck coming and and she gets a bead on him. And then what happens? But uh, Ray comes to the rescue in a sense. It seemed weirdly timed, uh, pulls her back. Uh, and then what's the first thing you're going to say? What does the state have on me? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, okay, that dialogue, I thought that it, that made sense and that he's in pain, his life is in shambles, and he just wants to blurt out, what does the state have on me? It felt awkward, but I'm willing to, that's the one of the few things in this season that I'm willing to suspend, suspend disbelief on. Uh, as for uh, pulling her out of the way, they're in like a fetal position together, lying on the side of the road. And how do you pull someone back? It, I, I, that would make sense if they were going from one side of the road to the other and tackling, but not if you're pulling, if that makes sense. Like, that was something that stood out to me is like, wait, why are they lying on the road together? Like, wouldn't Rachel McAdams be on the road and then Vicoro just be standing there having pulled her out of the way instead of pushing her or grabbing her? I, I don't know. I thought that was weird. It's like his his instinct was just to go ahead and fall backwards with her in his arms. Exactly. Now... I accept this, the reason he says that as a way we do in the precinct, which is, you know, if I do you a solid, you have to do me a solid, and you understand that you can trust me, and I should be able to trust you. So I've just saved your life. Tell me the answer to this question. But it still felt very ham-fisted and bizarre, and I'm not a fan of how it ended up like rolling out of his mouth or the context in which like, that again, I want to suspend disbelief. I want to like this show, but that felt awkward. I, I totally agree. I'm just playing devil's advocate on that one <laughs> and, and somehow trying to say, the, the, I shouldn't have to do this. I feel like Andy Anako, 
but I shouldn't have to be, you know, <laughs> and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, I'm just saying, you know, I, I respect Andy in, especially when he, when, especially in what he looks at in character, it's like, wait, but you, why would you even do that? Um, and it doesn't make much sense for you to do it. That's almost, I would almost expect that to next episode, like them eating something and just saying, you know, look, now that we've kind of established this trust, you know, I, I'm going to lose my son because of the state. What do they have on me? And then for her to just say, I don't know. It was just, again, it was just, it, it was, the timing was wrong. It, the placement of it wrong. No, exactly. Exactly. I thought it was bizarre and it was a weird way to No, That wasn't even the end of the episode. We get another scene of almost nothing with Vince Vaughn and uh, his wife and it just ends. And it's like, Oh, Okay. One last thing. I All want right. Well, no. Now, now, now that the, see, and this is the problem with that that final episode or the final scene is she puts herself on my radar of person of interest immediately on that. The way in which she's playing the idea, you know, the looking and whatnot, and the way she was behaving, I was just like, oh boy, you're on the inside. But who? I I don't know who. Who's she on the take for? But she's on the take. Oh, I disagree. I think that that scene to me meant that um, that scene just pissed me off and that it ends with a tender moment between the two of them. And they are the last people I want to have a tender moment between at the end of an episode. We only get eight of these and I want the end of these to be good and memorable like last week's, even if it didn't actually pull through. Well, or just leave it at the truck goes by and he pulls right away and we saw we see the guy keep running. Exactly. I'll accept that. I'd accept that too. But okay, we're at an hour. Um, I want to wrap up with uh, one more uh, comment about the chase itself. We didn't really touch on that. I mentioned earlier that in my eyes, True Detective is half screenwriting characters and half direction and aesthetics. And the show is still keeping up on the amazing uh, cinematography um, and really great production design. It's no you know six minute tracking shot, but it's something. And this is the first real, like, you know, set piece we get that isn't inconsequential. And I loved when they ran through the place with all the fire, all of the uh, uh, homeless people gathered around the fires and all that stuff. I thought that looked great. Uh, this brings back the motif from last season, the fire. Uh, a lot of the stuff in the opening sequence, the fire. Uh, I think that looked great. And I feel like that is a huge part of the show's aesthetic. But as we talked about, it kind of ends with nothing. And this was a good way to, you know, get a bit of adrenaline back into the show, but it still felt very like it didn't belong or it didn't like add much of anything except we found the car. And also there's a guy and uh, also that weird moment with Rachel McAdams and uh, Vakoro at the end. But oh God, I'm we're running long, but I do want to add one more comment. And it's that the only reason I'm watching the show next week or planning on watching the show next week is for this podcast. I'll leave it at that. I'll send you some tapes this week about that. You can look forward to that next week listeners, but ugh, I am fed up with the show. Well, I start to believe in Tim Goodman and some of his predilections. Um, he only got to this episode so he knew what was going to happen. He has not seen this episode coming up, episode four. So I am right there with you, but we have a job to do. And sometimes we don't like the job, jobs that we're given, but we have to finish them through no matter what. Of course. No, I'm, I'm sticking right here with you. I'm going to watch the run of the show to the end, but 
I'm not going to enjoy it. I'm going to be a hard-boiled detective with uh, coffee and black coffee and more black coffee and some espresso and then some more black coffee because I'm a hard-boiled detective. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Oh, man. So uh, thanks again for listening this week, everyone. Uh, your feedback in between episodes is fantastic. Let's take advantage of this one time in history where we're able to have this week between episodes and build up a bit of hype. Uh, Phil, where can they find you on Twitter? All right. If you have any information, always go to Twitter at Moze, M-O-Z-E, throw it down, and we will star it and make sure it, we discuss it later. Indeed. And uh, you can do the same with me at underscore Brian Hamilton, spelled with an I. Uh, you guys rock. Thank you so much for listening every week. I was not caught, though many tried. I live among you, well disguised. Hi, Erica. Hi, Stephen. Uh, what are we doing here? Well, we're talking about a Doctor Who podcast that we do together called Lazy Doctor Who. Oh, really? What's that about? <laughs> it's where you and I watch Doctor Who from the very first episode, made in 1963, up to the present day, and then we talk about it on the podcast. What? Over 800 episodes of Doctor Who from William Hartnell to Peter Capaldi, all in one sitting? No, silly. We talk about each episode as we watch them. Or maybe we talk about a couple episodes per podcast or however many we feel like watching in a particular night. How on earth are we going to fit all of these podcasts in? Well, that is the beauty of it. We record a podcast whenever we get around to it and for however long we want to talk for. We're lazy like that. So, it's a Doctor Who podcast where the hosts are kind of lazy, so... Yep, lazy Doctor Who Find it on the Incomparable Network, on iTunes, or at LazyDoctorWho.com. Thanks for explaining that. I was feeling... Lazy? Yeah. Yeah.